This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant from Matthew 18. And before we look at the text, let's start by considering two different people. First, we have Bill. Bill's a Christian, but he doesn't consider himself a very forgiving person. In the workplace, Bill's boss is condescending, borderline abusive, and incompetent. One day in a meeting, Bill's Um, boss invites proposals for some solutions for how to solve problems that the company's been facing. And Bill steps on this and he presents an idea. As soon as he finishes, his boss shuts him down and says how terrible his ideas were and makes belittling comments about his intelligence. Bill's finally had enough and he lets his boss know exactly what he thinks and he explodes in the meeting. Let's consider Joyce. Joyce is a Christian as well, and she considers herself a very forgiving person. She understands that she's been forgiven by God, and that she needs to pour that forgiveness and that love out into the lives of those around her. Her mother-in-law moves in, who has dementia. Her kids enter high school. And after a few years, Joyce is just getting tired. Her mother-in-law continues to make critical comments about her parenting, about her housekeeping, 
and her kids encounter more and more troubles as they make their way through high school. One day, Joyce has just had enough. She can't bring herself to forgive just one more time. Both Bill and Joyce have encountered one of the basic struggles that we all face, forgiving others. Each of them bottomed out and found the limit of their own ability to forgive. And in their moment of weakness and failure, the question that they're asking themselves is the same question that we're asking ourselves this morning. What do you do? What do you do when you can't forgive big destructive sins? What do you do when you can't forgive repeated small offenses day after day? What do you do when you want to forgive, but the person that's offended you doesn't recognize that they've hurt you? This passage is meant to answer these questions, the questions that we ask in those dark moments. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus, instead of just saying, forgive more, leads us on a journey through a story to get us to the heart of forgiveness. In this story, we're going to be led on a journey to see and experience the nature of sin and forgiveness from a variety of angles. It's much like looking at a tree. We have a very large maple tree in our front yard. I've been spending a lot of time outside this summer with my kids. And if I'm right underneath the tree in the front yard, I can see the branches fanning out. I see the leaves, the underside, the colors a little different than on the top of the leaves. If I step back to the road, I can see the tree towering above the house. I get a sense of how tall it is. If I step off to the side, I can see the tree also tall above the house, but a few branches leaning over that I should probably take care of sometime soon. The point is, through that journey of making my way around the tree and under it, I get a sense of what makes this tree this tree. I know its colors, the way it moves, the branches that are hanging over. And very similarly in this passage, Jesus takes us through a journey from a variety of angles to help us understand, to know, to see, experience sin and forgiveness. So this morning we're going to see several things. We're going to see the scope and the power of sin. We're going to see how sin persistently works to destroy our relationships. We're going to see how we consistently struggle to forgive. Toward the end of the story, we're going to see the serious consequences of an unforgiving heart. And at the end of this journey, Jesus finally answers the question, what do you do? And his answer? The power of God's forgiveness is your only hope for change. The power of God's forgiveness is the only thing that can transform the hearts of Bill's and Joyce's and of you and me. So, do you want to be a more forgiving person? Do you long for change? Do you see how sin destroys your relationships and you want a way other than bitterness and hatred? Are you skeptical of forgiveness and don't see your need for change? Wherever you are this morning, welcome to Matthew 18. And before we dive in, let's pray. Oh God, be with us by your spirit this morning as we look at your word. Lead us on this journey through this story to see sin and forgiveness and the power of Christ for us. And this we ask in his name. Amen. If you don't have your Bible open, please grab it. We're going to be looking at chapter 18 of Matthew, starting in verse 21. 
It's on page 823 of your Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you an overview of what was just read for you. The passage begins with a brief exchange between Peter and Jesus, where Peter poses a question, a possible answer, and then Jesus gives a slightly different answer. And to help illustrate that answer, Jesus goes on to give a parable. And this story has three scenes to it, and we'll consider each in turn. First, let's look at verse 21. Read with me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter's question here comes on the heels of a whole discourse that spans all of chapter 18. And in this discourse, Jesus is looking at the kingdom of God and specifically the characteristics of the kingdom community. I encourage you later this afternoon to go back and read all of chapter 18, but let me just summarize some of the main themes that Jesus presents here. Here we see that the kingdom community is characterized by humility. It's characterized by a striving against temptation and sin. It's characterized by God's relentless love that's pictured in the parable of the lost sheep. And this community is characterized by a path for restoration when someone has been sinned against. So after this, Peter finally gets a moment to interject. He's not known for his subtlety or his restraint. And he throws out the question, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? It's a really simple question and a very natural one. And it needs to be asked at this point in the flow of chapter 18. Peter was facing Bill and Joyce situations. And what's at the heart of his question? Well, there are a couple options, at least. One is that he's asking this from a sense of exasperation, saying, how many times do I need to forgive? Or he could be looking to justify himself, to do something of his own achievement, saying, how many times must I forgive? The number he chose gives us a sense of where he's coming from. At the time in the rabbinic tradition, three was the acceptable number of times to forgive someone an offense. Once they got to four, you were off the hook. You didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter poses seven, which is beyond that. And it shows us a couple things about, about Peter's answer. It shows us that he got something right, that forgiveness should be abundant. It should go beyond what we normally expect. But the thing that we see that's more important is that he missed the point. He missed the point that he thought he could quantify righteousness into a number of his own making. And we do this, right? I'll forgive my roommate for not cleaning up the dishes only for a couple weeks. I'll forgive my coworker for accidentally eating the food I left in the fridge the first time, but not the second time. I'll forgive my brother or sister for taking that toy from me when I was playing with it this morning, only when mommy and daddy are there, but I'm not going to forgive them later in the day after nap time. I'll forgive my children only up until 8 o'clock at night. Like Peter, we want to quantify righteousness. 
we tend to forgive only until it's inconvenient. So how does Jesus answer him? He goes right to the heart. He says, I say to you not seven, but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times seven. The point here is not 490 times, if you do the math. The point is a number that is so large you shouldn't be counting it. Peter missed the point. Forgiveness is not just something that we can achieve. It's not something that conforms to the whims of our convenience. Like Peter, we grow weary of forgiveness. That's the heart of what we see in his question. Sometimes we grow weary very quickly, like we saw with Bill. Have you ever found yourself telling someone off while you're driving for cutting in front of you? You're going 40 and they just came out right as you were getting there? What about the sinful comment from a parent that really hurts you and leaves you feeling angry? We grow wary of forgiveness also through attrition, like we saw with Joyce. Do your children keep sinning against you the same way, multiple times a day, day after day? Does your coworker consistently do sloppy work that leaves you to pick up the loose ends so that your department meets its numbers? So when you're weary of forgiveness, what do you do? And what do you do with Jesus' answer? Peter must have been asking this question too, and Jesus knew that. So he gives this parable as a way to help Peter and us understand. So let's now turn to the parable. The first scene that we find beginning in verse 23 gives us our first view of forgiveness. And from this angle, if you remember the tree, looking at forgiveness, from this angle, we see two main things. We see the weight of our sin and our blindness to it. See the weight of our sin and our blindness to it. The scene unfolds in three parts. We see the facts, the plea, and the verdict. So let's reread this, noticing that three-part structure. So look in verse 23 with me, the facts. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So next we see the plea here in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And now we see the verdict in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's notice two main things here about this first scene. First, the size of the debt. There are a few different ways to think about how large this actually was, and you numbers folks get excited. We're gonna talk about numbers for a little bit. If you're not into numbers, just hang on, I'll give you the highlights as we go along. The first way to think about it is the most natural way that the text presents it to us. How much the debt was for one person. One talent was about 20 years wages for a common laborer of the time. And instead of giving you all the historical currency amounts, I'm just gonna translate it into modern day dollars so we have a sense of what's going on here. So today, an average laborer makes about $15 an hour, with about 2,000 hours a year, an annual income is close to $30,000. So 
So one talent, or 20 years' wages, would be $600,000. This servant owed 10,000 talents, which puts the money amount up to $6 billion. Now, if we push that even further to consider how many years of labor that was, the number we get is 200,000 years of labor that he owed to the king. From this angle, we see the sheer depth of the debt. It's a lot like walking up to a cliff, and as you look down, it just keeps going down and down and down, and there's no bottom in sight. Another way to think about this debt besides its depth is how much this debt would have applied to a large group of people in one year. 10,000 talent, 10, talents would be about a full year's wage for close to 200,000 people. And that, by some rough estimates, that was the population of Galilee at the time. So from that perspective, we can see the breadth of the debt, of the debt that it would have applied widely over a large span of people. One third way to think about it is in terms of its actual weight. And I think we miss this one because we don't think of our money in terms of weight. We think of our money in terms of plastic and paper. But in that time, a talent, it was 75 pounds. So 10,000 talents puts it at 375 tons. That's pretty hard for me to wrap my mind around exactly how heavy that is. So I tried to think of a few images that could help us get there. One is an elephant. So imagine an elephant standing in the room here, no pun intended, and it weighs seven tons. That's a seven-ton creature. So if we had 53 elephants, maybe they'd fit in the parking lot if it was empty. That was the weight of the debt. I heard that big thundering around. Another way to think about it would be in terms of a house. A one-story house with about 1,600 square feet is roughly 100 tons. So let's multiply that by three to get a three-story house and throw in a pool to get the extra 75. So imagine a three-story house with the pool. That's the weight. And I couldn't help it. I just thought of Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote going along, and you know, stuff's always falling on Wile E. Coyote. And there's a three-story house with the pool. And that falls on him. So that's a humorous way to think about it. But there is a little bit of dark humor in this passage. There's this huge weight that was looming over this servant. Which brings us to the second point of what to notice here. The servant didn't get it. Look back at verse 26 with me and look at his exact words that he says to the king. Middle of 26. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So he missed the point. There was a debt so huge looming over him that he could never pay back in his lifetime, and he still thought that he could pay it back. So do we feel the weight of our sin? If we were honest with ourselves, we'd say, probably not very much or as often as we should. When do we see the weight of sin rightly? When our consciences are still tender and soft to sin and seeing the weight of that before God. Also, when we've seen how our sin hurts someone else, and we see the pain on their face, we can feel the weight of sin and what it's done. But so often, we are blind to sin. Our sinful habits and our hardness of heart make us numb to the seriousness of sin. But sin's depth, its breadth, 
and its weight are no less real. Isn't it easy to minimize the seriousness of sin in our lives every day? The negative comments that you made about someone behind their back really aren't that bad. The pornographic images you saw on your computer just briefly, it's really not that bad. Holding a small grudge against your dad for overwork and being absent from your life, it's justified. That little bit of anger you have is not that bad. Sin blinds us to seeing things rightly. It blinds us to the weight of sin. So what do you do? What do you do when you don't see and feel the weight of your debt before the king? Our next scene begins just after the throne room and the servant has left. And don't miss the parallelism here. We're going to go qu more quickly through this. Well, this parallelism is meant to show the similarities and some striking contrasts in this scene. First, we have the facts. If you look in verse 28, we see that the servant goes out and finds another, another servant who owes him 100 denarii. We see the plea in verse 29. Very similar wording to what we saw the plea in the first scene. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. And then we see the verdict in verse 30. He does not forgive him. He throws him in jail until he can pay back the debt. These contrasts are striking that we see amidst the parallelism. We see a contrast in the amount and a contrast in the verdict. So let's start with the amount. 100 denarii. An average laborer earned one denarii each day. So 100 denarii is about just over three months wages. So in our terms, that's about $8,000. So it's not an insignificant amount that he owed. And I think at this point, it'd be really helpful to step back and consider what forgiveness is. We've been using that word very often, and let's think about what that is. How do we understand its nature? I think the first scene gives us an amount that's so huge it's hard to wrap our minds around, this forgiven debt of $6 billion. But 8,000 is something that strikes a little bit closer to home, something that we can relate to a bit more. So what is forgiveness? I did my best to think of a single item that's about $8,000 that's not insured that we could use for this, and I could not think of one. So the best thing that I could think of was a really nice computer. So something over $1,000, let's call it a nice new MacBook Pro with the touch bar on the top, nice piece of equipment. And let's say you lent your computer to your friend who needed it in a pinch, and he comes back to you a couple days later and says, I'm really sorry, I spilled coffee all over it and it completely fried it. I, I'm really sorry. So in that moment, you can do one of two things. One, you can say, I really need you to pay for that. I don't have the money to buy a new one right now and I really need my computer for my work. Or you can say, don't worry about it. Accidents happen, I'm really sorry that happened, but I'm, I'm gonna cover it, don't worry about it. So in that second option, that, that's what forgiveness looks like. There's something that was destroyed, that was yours, and you're choosing to take that cost on yourself. And forgiveness, this idea of cost and forgiving a cost, has a few different domains. One is the domain of actual money. So you have to pay you know, over $1,000 to get a new computer. There can be emotional cost to forgiveness. 
Maybe this is a computer that you worked all summer for to pay for amidst all your other bills. Or you had some files on there that you hadn't backed up recently, and it'll take you hours to replace those. There's also a cost of time. The time it takes for you to work to get the money to buy a new one and to go out and find one. So if we were to define what forgiveness is based on that image of what forgiveness would look like, we could say that forgiveness is choosing to absorb the cost of a wrong that's done to you. Choosing to absorb the cost of a wrong done to you. Now at this point, some of you may be saying, come on, how can I do that? You don't really know my situation. And some of the questions that we struggle with when we struggle with forgiveness are things like, what if I know the other person will never admit that they've sinned against me? Don't they need to ask for forgiveness in order for forgiveness to happen? Isn't this a two-way street, something that's mutual? Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is a posture of the heart, which is what Jesus gets to at the end of our passage in verse 35. Reconciliation is something different, though. Reconciliation is when two parties recognize the wrong that's been done and they work together to mend things. It's precisely because Jesus wants reconciliation that he gives an outlined process for the kingdom community for how to bring that about in the passage before we read today. And because reconciliation can be so hard and forgiveness can be so hard when there is no reconciliation, Jesus gives us this parable. So if you think that forgiveness is reconciliation, you'll be very disillusioned and you'll find this call to forgiveness nearly impossible. So if you're looking for an end to your hatred, if you're looking for an end to your bitterness, if you're looking for an end to that feeling that you have when you've forgiven someone, but they don't return that and they don't recognize that they have hurt you, then keep following where Jesus leads us in this story. Just hang on a little bit longer. So coming back to the parable, we see that an unforgiving heart produces very ugly results. The first servant goes out to find the other servant, and when he can't pay the 100 denarii, he begins to choke him. Now, we don't physically choke others, but what are some ways that we react when we have an unforgiving heart? The silent treatment, coldness, keeping a record, remembering what happened the month before and the month before, refusing to be generous or kind with our words or actions, or even just plain decent. So what do you do when you're holding on, when you refuse forgiveness to others, what do you do? Our final scene is back in the throne room. Only this time the tension in the air is so thick you can feel it. The servant is called to account. Look at verse 32 with me. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The king is appalled, and he basically says, how could you? How could you not forgive? And the answer to that is because the servant did not believe that he was actually forgiven. That's why this servant went out as soon as he had forgiveness pronounced upon him, he went out to find another servant who owed him $8,000 so that he could take that and start paying back the $6 billion that he thought he still owed. So the king assumes something in his words here. He assumes that when you believe you are forgiven, that forgiveness will transform your heart. When you believe and see and understand that you are truly forgiven, that forgiveness will change you. Failure to forgive comes with a strong warning. You will not be forgiven by God. The weight of sin that we talked about earlier, that's looming over your head, that will come back to crush you. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that once you've been forgiven by God through Christ, and you step out of line one time and you're not going to forgive someone, you just blew it, your forgiveness is now gone. Rather, what he's saying is that not forgiving reveals that you are not a forgiven person. Not forgiving others reveals that you are not a forgiven person. That's why the king is so mystified and so angry. The root of the servant's unforgiving heart was unbelief. So how do we feel the weight of sin? How do we overcome our blindness? How do we overcome our need to hold on? And how do we overcome our unbelief? Before answering how, just imagine what forgiveness would look like in your life. Let's come back to Bill. Bill realizes that he blew it. He goes to his boss. He apologizes. They're able to have a frank conversation about everything that's been going on. And their relationship is restored and reconciled. And they're able to move in a much better direction in the workplace. Let's come back to Joyce. Her situation actually doesn't get any better at all. It gets worse. Her mother-in-law's dementia gets worse. Her kids are okay. They're in, still struggling with similar troubles in their lives. But she's able to get back up the next morning and forgive. What would it look like to forgive the person who cuts you off in traffic? Actually having a patient, kind heart instead of just being annoyed. What would it look like to forgive an alienated spouse who can't speak a kind word to you and move from a place of bitterness to a place of love? What would it look like to forgive young children being tender and gentle and kind despite their persistent disobedience? What do you do? How do we get there? First of all, Ask God to remove your blindness to the weight of your sin. Ask. Ask him to remove your blindness to the weight of your sin. Seeing is the first step. Next, ask yourself, who do I struggle to forgive? Let's do that now. Take a moment. Who do you struggle to forgive? Finally, 
The point of this parable is not that you would go out and try harder to forgive. We already saw that the servant didn't need to do more to get to, an unf to, get to a forgiving heart. We see that he needed to believe that he was forgiven. So, believe in and rest in the forgiveness of God for you. Bill recognized this. He recognized that the way forward was not just smoothing it over and going on, but it was realizing his, the weight of his sin and going and confessing because of the forgiveness that God had granted to him. Joyce could get back up because Jesus had forgiven her, and her heart was transformed each and every morning that she could get up again and forgive in a situation that was only getting worse. So go to Jesus at the cross. Here we see the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. We see that he was sinned against 70 times 7 and more. Here we see the depth, the breadth, and the weight of his love for us. Here we see our blindness removed as we see him dying in our place. And we hear his dying words, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. A familiar hymn captures this so well. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, won through your selfless love. And this, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. So when you hit the wall, when you don't want to forgive, when you're just plain tired, go to Jesus. Go to him. Believe in him and rest in the power of his forgiveness for you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we can't do this. We need you to reveal our blindness. We need to remove our blindness to help us see the weight of our sin before you. We need your spirit to make us alive. We need you to help search our hearts so that we see the ways that we don't forgive others and help us identify those who we struggle to forgive. And God, we need Jesus. We need his work on the cross where we see all these things. So may we go to him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.